Stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, visit www.3cr.org.au. Because we got the alternative energy, molecular free autonomy. And welcome to the Radioactive Show, produced at the studios of 3CR Melbourne and heard nationally on the Community Radio Network. Hi, my name's Mara. This episode of the Radioactive Show was produced on the stolen lands of the Ghana and Gogotha people for 3CR Melbourne. With the war in Ukraine threatening nuclear power plants, on this week's show we talked to Friends of the Earth's Dr Jim Green about threats, safeguards and what it means for the nuclear industry in Australia. After that, we'll hear an interview with Gogotha elder Auntie Sue Coleman-Hasseldine, who became a tireless anti-nuclear campaigner after learning of the long-term impacts of the British bomb tests at Maralinga on her country and people, and Susie Thistleton, who works alongside Auntie Sue caring for country. First, we'll hear from Dr Jim Green. Hi Jim, thanks for joining us on the Radioactive Show today. Yep, no problems, Mara. So today we're going to talk about the situation in Ukraine and the nuclear threat arising from it. Can you please give us a brief update about the situation? Yeah, sure. Well, in broad brush terms, um, the Chernobyl nuclear plant was taken over, but then uh, the Russians evacuated from there. So it's a clean-up job there, and uh, we'll have to wait and see what happens. But easily the most important situation is the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant. It's the biggest nuclear power plant in Europe with six reactors. And Russia seized that plant early in the war, would have been late February or early March, and Ukrainian operators have been operating the plant under the direction and under the control of, of the Russian invaders, and it's been a, extremely difficult for them because, you know, to get from their homes to the nuclear power plant, they're going through a war zone. There's all sorts of problems with the staffing there, uh, and that's very dangerous in and of itself because you obviously have to have trained and alert staff to avoid problems. And there's been military shelling of the nuclear power plant repeatedly, initially by the Russians when they seized control of the plant, but more recently we don't really know who's been shelling the plant. It could possibly be Ukrainians shelling the plant because the Russians are using it as as a military base. But again, very dangerous, and it's not just the risk of a direct strike on a nuclear power plant on the the reactor itself. It's also the water system needs to be operating continuously, and if it's not, then you get a nuclear meltdown. And you have to have power to operate the water cooling system. So if the power is cut off, then you get a nuclear meltdown. Um, And they have had the power cut off almost entirely, but not completely, and they've also got backup power generators on site, but most of the power supply to the plant has been cut off at various times. So incredibly dangerous. Then, in a worst-case scenario, you have to do emergency operations in a war zone, which, again, is either very difficult or completely impossible. So we've got through the first five or so months of this without a disaster, but that doesn't mean we'll get through the coming months without a a nuclear disaster. Uh, And, yeah, it's really troubling. What would happen if there was a direct strike to a reactor? Well, the most likely outcome is nothing because uh, it's very difficult to breach the, uh, the protections on a nuclear reactor, especially the actual reactors themselves and their pressure vessels. They're very solid. 
Um, but, you know, that doesn't mean it's impossible. Uh, you could certainly get a cascading situation where there's enough damage that means that they can't safely operate the reactor, they can't properly shut it down. Uh, a strike that took out a reactor could also be damaging your power supply and or your water cooling systems. Uh, so that's all possible, but I would say the bigger risks are those indirect ones, power supply, water supply, but also the very soft underbelly of this is staffing. You know, they've lost most of the staffing from, from the reactor plant. Uh, you have to have staff that are alert and are not being terrorised, which they are, and, uh, you know, that could prove to be the, un the weak underbelly of the whole situation is the staffing problem. And a related problem is it's such a big plant that Ukraine hasn't felt able to just turn it off to shut it down, which wouldn't completely negate the risks, but it would would significantly reduce the risks. But they rely on it for so much power. They rely on nuclear power for 50% of their electricity before the war. So one of the many lessons from this fiasco is that relying on nuclear power for 50% of your electricity supply is a, is a really dumb idea because it means you're going to have to keep operating reactors even in times of war. So when Russia first seized control of the Zaporizhia plant, they were actually operating reactors at the time that the reactor was being seized, shelled and seized. So that's an absolute nightmare scenario. How much of the truth of the situation, what's really going on, do you think we can know about? Well, it's a good question because everything has to be treated with so much scepticism. Um, and a case in point is the recent shelling of the of the plant. Uh, you know, Russia is using the plant as a military base, so presumably Russia is not firing on its own military base, but maybe they are doing that as a false flag operation that they can blame on the Ukrainians. Uh, perhaps it's Ukrainians, either with or without the approval and authorization of the central government that's shelling the plant um, and again you could have a false flag scenario where Russia where Ukrainians are shelling the plant and wanting the Russia to be blamed for that for that but from this distance you know no one's got any idea anyone who claims with certainty to know what's going on there is really kidding themselves what role do you think that the International Atomic Energy Agency has to play well, they've been uh, making strong statements ever since the war started on February 24 and they've been openly acknowledging the potential for a nuclear catastrophe, so they get a tick for that. But beyond that, you know, they haven't done anything useful. There is a IAEA mission on the way to the Zaporizhia plant as we speak, so that will be in the news over the coming days. But there's nothing they can do. Um, I would say it's really just PR spin, mostly. Um, you know, they're going to have a one-day mission to the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant. They'll get a little bit of credible information, but they're not going to be able to fix any of the problems. Uh, so I think it's really just PR and no real substance behind the IAEA's role. And we've got every reason to be deeply cynical about the IAEA. It's a UN body but it's got promote the promotion of nuclear power built into its charter, so it's got a long history of promoting nuclear power and downplaying safety and security risks. 
and perhaps the most striking example there was Japan, where the IAEA knew as well as everyone else that the uh, Japanese nuclear industry was deeply corrupt and that regulation was a joke. But they rarely, if ever, said anything about Japan's corrupt nuclear industry, let alone doing, doing anything about it. And, you know, as we know, the outcome of that was the Fukushima nuclear disaster. Wow, so... There's somewhere between a paper tiger and a propaganda machine for the nuclear industry. Yeah, uh, both. Um, uh, an old academic who I used to work with at Wollongong University, uh, Professor Jim Fork, he described it as half-blind, toothless and mute. That really describes the three operations of the International Atomic Energy Agency. They are... They've got limited capacity or interest in finding out what's really going on at nuclear power plants around the world. Uh, they're toothless in the sense that they've got no real power to do anything and they've got all these secrecy provisions so they're effectively mute. Even when they do come across problems, they're prohibited from publicly talking about them. So it's a joke. I really have got a lot of anger towards the IAEA. What are the implications of what's going on in Ukraine for the for nuclear power generally and in Australia specifically? Yeah, um, well, it depends how it plays out. I mean, if there is a Fukushima-scale disaster, which is definitely a, a real possibility, then I would think that would sound the death knell for the nuclear power industry worldwide. Uh, it's already very, very sickly. You know, one more big hit and nuclear power dies worldwide. But, you know, we haven't had a Fukushima-scale disaster in the Ukraine yet, touch wood. And so the effects have been surprisingly positive, uh, in particular in Europe, where the uh, disruption of fossil fuel supplies from Russia to Europe have resulted in countries doing, coming up with all sorts of stopgap measures. And one of them is in Belgium, where they have postponed the phase out of nuclear power. They've got old and dangerous reactors in Belgium, and most of, the, most of them have been closed down but they've postponed the closure of the last two reactors from 2025 to 2035. And the same might happen in Germany. That's under consideration at the moment. Uh, the UK is using this situation and disrupted fossil fuel supplies from Russia to justify its plan to build a new, a new nuclear power plant called Sizewell C. But mind you, I think they wanted to support it anyway, and they're just using the current situation as, a, as an excuse or a justification. So in the short term, it's been surprisingly positive, but in the longer term, you know, nuclear power plants are not designed to operate in times of war, and the, out, the worst case scenario is a nuclear disaster in a war zone, which is beyond anyone's worst nightmare. And I would think that one outcome of this might be that they have to have they have to add protections to existing nuclear power plants all around the world. Uh, you know, tougher protections not only for the reactors but also for water and power supply systems. And that could well, that will obviously cost money uh, in a circumstances where the nuclear power industry is is bankrupt effectively and completely incapable of surviving on its own without massive ongoing public subsidies so i think in the longer term it will probably have a negative effect but in the short term the industry is getting a bit of a sugar hit because of this related problem of fossil fuel supplies from russia mm. well it's all rather complex and a little scary um uh, you, you included australia in that question Do you, yep. um 
will I just tack on a thing and you can, mm. yeah. So it hasn't really affected the nuclear debate in Australia. In Australia, we've just got this ridiculous push for small modular reactors from the National Party, but the Liberal Party is resistant to that. So, you know, at the moment, it's still a status quo. We've we've got the uh, Coalition and the Labor Party saying that Australia's federal legal ban, which prohibits nuclear power, should be maintained. And uh, I'm very confident that that will be maintained for so long as we have a Labor government, which will be three, six, nine years or so. And it's really just the silliest nationals, MPs, who are promoting this and no one with any substance and, or power and no one with any knowledge of the realities of nuclear power or the uh, unrealities of these non-existent small modular reactors. Well, hopefully, but I keep saying that nuclear power debate in Australia is a bit like whack-a-mole. You think you've put it to bed and it keeps coming up again. It's quite astonishing these nationals keep flogging that particular dead, well, hopefully dead horse. It's amazing. Um, do you think the situation in Ukraine would have any impact on uranium sales? Well, it should, and we're definitely going to be pushing for that because, you know, Ukraine is a classic case of how incredibly irresponsible Australia's uranium export policies are. The agreement to sell uranium to Ukraine came after Russia had invaded in 2014. Russia invaded Crimea and eastern Ukraine, and that resulted in nuclear facilities um, being taken over by the Russians. It meant a complete breakdown of safeguards inspections by the IAEA and to be exporting uranium to a country in those circumstances where safeguards have already broken down was just staggeringly irresponsible but it was approved by the coalition government it went through parliament's treaties committee where they did an inquiry and it was the worst of all the sham inquiries I've ever had the displeasure of participating in we friends of the earth was the one and only NGO called to give evidence and they were completely disinterested and not taking any notice of what we said uh, but even so that treaties committee even though it was basically a whitewash it did say that you have to have safeguards inspections if Australia's uranium is going to be exported there but we have exported uranium and it's doubtful whether there have been any safeguards inspections. So, you know, that I think over the coming year and two is something that we should push very hard on is not only the specific instance of Ukraine where it's irresponsible to be exporting uranium, but so many other countries for so many reasons, whether it's because of inadequate safety protocols or because they're weapon states that are building up their nuclear arsenals or for a whole host of reasons, we need a, a serious rethink of Australia's uranium export policies. Like stop them entirely? Yeah, that'd be a great idea. Or the alternative would be to just draw up some common sense provisions, you know. You have to have IAEA safeguards for whatever they're worth. You have to have an independent regulator. Uh, we shouldn't sell to weapon states, but if we do, it would be on the condition that there's strict separation between the military and the civil nuclear programs. Common sense proposals like that, that would be the, the other way to tackle this. Mind you, if you'd followed that to its logical conclusion, we wouldn't be selling uranium anywhere anyway because, you know, I don't think there's any country that can say that they've got really strong uh, safety protocols or that their regulator is faultless and entirely independent and so on. So that brings us back to what the nuclear-free movement has been saying always, 
Leave it in the ground. Absolutely, leave it in the ground. It's that simple. The situation in Ukraine, as it unfolds, is quite scary, unclear, and there's a lot of potential consequences, most of them negative, um, and even the potential death of nuclear power would come at great cost for that to happen because it would have to be catastrophic to get it there, as you've said. Um, but thank you for giving us your time and your thoughts and your insight on that situation because you've had your eyes on nuclear power globally for a long time and this is a situation we haven't really been looking at, um, nuclear threat in a war zone for quite a while. No worries, thanks, Mara. You're listening to The Radioactive Show, broadcast nationally on the Community Radio Network. We just heard from Friends of the Earth's Dr Jim Green about the threats arising from the war in Ukraine. Next, we'll hear from Gogotha Elder Auntie Sue Coleman-Hasseldine and Susie Thistleton. I'm on Gogotha Country with Auntie Sue Coleman-Hasseldine and her partner in... or crime. S- Some would think crime. <laughs> <laughs> Susie Thistleton. What are you doing out here, Auntie Sue? Well, right at this moment, we're getting ready to go out bush to clean rock holes and, you know, look after the animals and the land. That's just at this moment. But oh, we do a lot of things here, though. You know, we're always on watching watching over the country for mining and rockets, and we're very aware of the fact that we're living on contaminated land from way back when Maralinga bombings. We, we do know that that's still affecting our, our families today. And, you know, that's not just Aboriginal people either. That's black, white and brindle, as my favourite saying. That's everybody, because uranium... You know, uranium's not prejudiced. They don't care whether you're rich or poor or black or white or any other thing. It's going to get you the same as everybody else. So <coughs> the big dream is to educate people. I think it is working, even if it is slowly. It's getting the word out there so that people understand that it's not okay to have a waste dump. It's, you know, it's not okay to dig up uranium anymore. It's not okay to send it over to another country where they can go and bomb their neighbour. You know, it's just not on. This is a world where people have got to look after the world, each other, the animals and the ocean. You know, everybody... It's not okay to go drilling in the ocean and it's not okay to drop rocket bits and pieces in the ocean or on our sacred sites. Or fire missiles into our sacred sites. Yes. Tell us more about the missiles. You're still... Dealing with the mess from the bombs being dropped with the atomic tests in the 50s and 60s, and now there's new ones being dropped around here. What's going on with well, that? There's a new group called Southern Launch. Um, they're, they're going to start up a test rocket range at Kuniba. They've already got Woomera where they've devastated the country around there. So, it, it, you know, the mind boggles that they want to start all over again, devastate all new country. And we don't understand what they're doing, what they're sending off into space, what's falling on country. We don't know any of it. We don't even know what sort of fuel they're using for their rockets. So you don't know what's landing on the country that we're about to go there to help clean up? No. And you don't know what they're dropping out there? No, we don't, we don't know anything, and they don't tell us anything either because they won't talk to me. That's it's okay. I really don't want to talk to them either. But um, they, they won't let us know when the bomb... They're, well, I'm calling them bombs... They may as well be the way they'll drop on country. They'll shatter things, you know, sacred rocks and and whatever debris they bring with them. They'll still be devastating the country. They could start fires and, you know, nobody stops to think that those animals, you know, they'll be 
terrified running before a fire. Just they've got to start thinking not about money and you know profit and just the, their own big egos. They've got to start thinking about the rest of the world, the world we all live in. You've just won an, another battle recently against the drilling in the bite, and this has popped up. It's just one thing after another. You've got the injury card, you've got the Merrilinga stuff, and then garden variety everyday racism that you get around here. Like It's just one thing other, and they haven't asked permission or got you any... waste dump as well down at Kimber. That's not very far away. So it just doesn't stop it around It doesn't here. stop. No, it doesn't stop. And they keep using this land out here to experiment on. And that's what they're doing with these rocket launches and the missiles. They'll, they'll be experimenting. And the company Southern Launch has said that experiments don't always work, so bits will fall where they're not supposed to and uh, cause trouble. So they've already said there's going to be misfires yes. and, and damage. Yes, yeah, I've got quotes from them where they have, yep. What got you into into it all, Susie? The love of the land. I've been helping Sue for at least 15 years to go out and, and help her clean the rock holes and, and do what needs to be done out there with the sacred land. And the whole area is sacred and it's also national parks and national parks are supposed to be for the people, not to be blocked off so that they can test missiles. Hang on, the... Testing rockets or missiles or whatever both on a national park? Yes, yes. Without permission, without any transparency with the community that would be able to go there on their weekends normally? They, they have permission, supposedly, but every time we speak to Southern Launch, they tell us different stories. So there, there's no transparency. We do not know what they're doing with what. All we can go on is what they've said, and we know that they're working with this Thales Australia, which, um, from what I gather, they make missiles and, and work with the Defence Department. They're, they're a huge, nasty yeah. weapons manufacturer. Uh, originally, Southern Launch told us that it, they had nothing to do with the Defence Department, and now we find out, yes, they do. They're actually testing missiles. So... You're about, we're about to go out on country and you don't know what's been dropped on there? No, we don't. I mean, you never know what we find, you know, on our travels. And um, Southern Launch says everything is safe, but if you find any rocket pieces, please call them so they can help you dispose of it safely. So if it's so safe, why the hell should we call them? Why don't we just bring their rubbish out? You know, they're not telling us the truth again. They should be collecting their own litter anyway. Surely they should, but given that Maralinga's not yet cleaned up, not, the, not the chances are a bit low. Not properly, no. For 200 kilometres around Maralinga, there are plutonium pellets that are just too many for them to clean up, so they're not doing anything. Mm-hmm. So They're never going to clean Maralinga and, and no. surrounding areas. It's impossible anyway. Yeah. See, see, I was a kid growing up at the mission when they were doing those at Kuniba Mission. Um, I would have just been eating the dirt as usual, not knowing that it was all contaminated already. And then you've got the mine out here, Iluka. And Sue has had thyroid cancer and passed it down to her granddaughter yeah. and her great-granddaughter who passed away. Well, that I'm not sure what that... That was, you know, bad deformities there, but... It's come down through the genes like um, good 
good doctor Bill Williams said. Mm. He explained it all to us, how it will come down through the genes, through the generations. Well, this is happening. And that's just my family, you know. What about the other families in, in this country? There's surely the goodness. There must be a lot of people asking questions as to why all of a sudden stillbirths, um, deformities, cancers are rampant in this country, in our town, capital cancer. Cancer capital of Australia. Sejuna is a cancer capital of Australia. And the heart disease, especially among the young men. Yes. My God, that's running running riot. And, you know, radiation causes heart disease too. But all this testing and stuff they're doing is totally safe. Yeah, I know, but don't touch anything. But, you know, if we see rubbish out there, we'll just pick it up and bring it home, Mm. throw it on one of our trailers, and we won't know whether it's radioactive or anything. Do you have a Geiger counter when you go out there? No, I think they're illegal. I tried to buy one. I did hire one for a little while. But it's so expensive and the actual... Go- we don't have any money, you know. We're, we're not a member of any group that can pay for us to look after things like this. And to spend a couple of thousand dollars on a decent Geiger counter, that's out of the question. We'll make that happen, would be, I think. It would be interesting, though. Yeah. It would be really interesting because I'd run amok with the thing. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. Arnie Sue with a Geiger counter out on country, watch out. <laughs> and Susie behind me there. <laughs> yeah. I'll pick it up and hold it and you, you can test it. <laughs> yeah, well, we've got to learn how to do it all. So we're about to go out into the Mallee West inland of Sojuna and mm-hmm. check on the rock holes. Why do they need checking? When we go out, we clean the rock holes out because, you know, dead animals in there all the time, camels, emus, kangaroos, dogs. So we clean all of that out and make sure the water is clean again for the animals. We take our own supply out because we don't know. Some of the rock holes have been contaminated and we don't trust to drink the water ourselves. But we do make sure that the animals have clean surface water and everything. And if a rock hole is looking really healthy... Well, we won't touch it, we won't empty it. But if it's dirty, we know animals are in the bottom, then we clean, pump all that old water out, take out all the bones. And it doesn't matter if people deliberately throw things in there too. You know, they're not going to stop us just because of their little stupid little act of vengeance or whatever they want to call it by deliberately contaminating the water holes. What do you mean by deliberately contaminating the water holes? What kind of stuff's happened? Well, at one time we went out to one of, one of the major sites, and there was 15 emus all lined up like little soldiers, dead in the waterhole, and I think there was three camels in one, and that's crap. That's not natural. No. That's not, that's not natural. natural forces. That's definitely not natural. And, you know, we've just got to go and clean them out again. So all they're doing is making work, work for us. I don't know what satisfaction they get out of it, but they're not going to stop us because we will do that work. Do you get any support for this work? Not government, they don't like me. Not miners, they don't like me. But I've got a lot of, I don't know, people call them greenies, whatever. I call them family. <laughs> uh, you know, I've got a lot of support from around Australia. And people overseas are starting to learn about us too. Like um, we took out an Ameri- American congressman and his wife. We took, we've taken out Japanese, Lithuanians, you know, Germans. We've taken them all out on country and they've gone back with a different view on what we do. And I like doing that because it's educating other people as well yeah. as to what we do and why we do it. And 
It's such important work and it's a privilege to be here with you and try to help. Um, <laughs> and I know you're really busy getting ready to hit the road. Thank you so much for sharing your time, Aunty Sue, Colin Hasseldine and Susie Thistleton. You're welcome. <laughs> no, you're welcome. And I'm, it's, it's a pleasure to have you and your friend coming out on country so that, you know, if you're going to help me fight for land you, you, and culture, you need to know what you're fighting for too. So I need to teach you. And also it's so much nicer here than in the city. Oh, oh yeah. You know, <laughs> campfire with that fire brigade coming and putting it out. <laughs> Thank you so much, Arnie Sue and Susie. We'll speak to you soon. No worries. Bye. Thank you so much to Aunty Sue Coleman-Hasseldine, Susie Thistleton and Dr Jim Green for joining us on today's show to talk about nuclear threats near and far from Ukraine to Sojourner in South Australia. Thanks for listening to The Radioactive Show. You can download the podcast of this program at 3cr.org.au slash radioactive. If you'd like to get in contact, you can email us at radioactiveshow.3cr at gmail.com. The Radioactive Show was produced with the support of Friends of the Earth's Nuclear Free Collective for 3CR Melbourne, which, who are in the unceded lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation in Fitzroy, Victoria. It's broadcast nationally on the Community Radio Network. Thanks for listening and tune in again next week for more news and views on nuclear, peace and energy issues.